From the team at CTS, this is the Train Ride Podcast, our show for endurance athletes who want to learn how to train more effectively and improve their performance. I'm Coach Adam Pulford, your host for the cycling edition of the show, where it's my job to interview top coaches, scientists, experts, and athletes in the world of cycling to bring you actionable training tips that you can apply to your own training. Now, let's dive into the show and learn how you can train right. Just a quick question for everyone. Where do you buy your gels, hydration mixes, and energy bars for training and racing? If you're like most of my athletes, you're buying from different websites, trying to find the best deal here or the right fuel there, and also maybe buying big boxes of stuff that you may or may not use. If you're not shopping at thefeed.com, you're missing out. The feed allows you to purchase, say, one individual serving of something so that you know if it works or you like the flavor. And once you do figure out what you do enjoy, you can put it on auto ship or buy your big boxes of stuff and away you go. The feed is the largest online marketplace for your sports nutrition, offering the brands that you know and love from Scratch Labs, Cliff Bar to Morton, plus their athlete customized supplements called Feed Formulas. Feed formulas are personalized supplements for athletes developed in part with Dr. Kevin Sprouse, the EF pro cycling team doctor, following the same protocols the top pro athletes use. I've met Dr. Kevin Sprouse a few times over the years working with different teams, and I listened to his podcast called The Podium. He's a smart guy. This isn't your typical doctor endorsement pill thing. Sprouse has been around the sport for some time, and he knows the athlete needs. So if you're interested in something like that, head on over to thefeed.com backslash trainwright and save 50% off your first order of feed formulas. That is thefeed.com backslash trainwright. Have you ever wondered why some really good climbers sit in the saddle and spin, yet some others jump out of the saddle and they go for miles? How do you decide which is better for you? And what does the science say about how best to do a hill climb? We'll explore more of those answers to those questions today on the Train Right Podcast. I brought in a special guest for today, too. She's a she's a hellacious climber in her own right. She is a good friend and a, a great CTS colleague. And uh, I, I'm really honored and pleased to introduce Renee Eastman to all of our listeners out there. So, Renee, welcome to the show. Thanks, Adam. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So for our listeners who may not know you, could you introduce yourself a bit more to the audience? Sure. My name's Renee Eastman. I have been a coach with CTS. This is my 21st year with CTS. So that means just about since time began at CTS. <laughs> um, I've held just about every job that there is at CTS, but my primary role is as a coach. And I specialize in road cycling. As an athlete, I've been a, a road cyclist for many decades. And as a coach, uh, I coach all sorts of athletes, you know, mountain, gravel, uh, even a few triathletes here and there, but uh, pre predominantly road cyclists. Gotcha. And I mean, even before you started working at CTS, I mean, you had uh, stints at the Olympic Training Center where you originally met and started working for Chris too, right? That's right. I've actually been working with Chris Carmichael since 1995. I was an intern at USA Cycling as a sports uh, physiologist. Exercise physiologist is my jam. I've got my undergraduate and my master's degree in uh, exercise physiology, and I've got my PhD in road cycling. Uh, <laughs> I'm a Cat One road cyclist. I still compete as a mature athlete. I still, still compete in the Pro and Two fields, and um, I've uh, racked up six national championships, uh, Masters level. I was just about to ask: Is that one of your national championship jerseys behind you? Is that one of your athletes? That's one of mine. Yeah. 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 All right. So as you can tell folks, we've, we've got some of the creme de creme, uh, Renee knows bike racing through and through both on the, the science side of things and also kind of the, the art form that we talked about in, in, uh, the background and intro of this episode. 
So Renee, again, thanks for making time to, uh, hang out with us here, uh, on the podcast. Absolutely. So when we, when we talk about climbing out of the saddle, I want to warn our listeners too. It's, it's probably going to come across a little bias on today's show because like myself, Renee, we love to climb out of the saddle. Like we're, we're out of the saddle climbers here. And so I am all about it, but I think that when we're, when we're queuing up this, this episode too, I think we both realized we do this a lot and there's benefit to it, but we need the science and we need to kind of shape this up to communicate and educate listeners a bit more as to why it's beneficial, when it's beneficial, and then how to do it so that it is beneficial, um, either, you know, for the enjoyment of the ride or the hill climb or, uh, tactically in, in a race. So when we're talking about when to get out of the saddle, Renee, what are, what are like the three main reasons when somebody would get out of the, out of the saddle? Um, the big one is going harder. You need a burst of speed or you hit a steep pitch on the, on, on the gradient where you just need to generate a little bit more force. Um, sometimes people just uh, need a little relief, maybe relief on your saddle area. Uh, maybe you've been you know, sitting for a while and need just a little bit of uh, blood flow to the yeah. area. Or to just even change the muscles that you're using, you know, just because you're kind of uh, relieve pressure on your back, uh, just get more blood flow to the muscles and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. I mean, going hard and that can be, you know, a steep hill climb, like you said, or even a sprint. And I think for the context of this conversation today, we're, we'll kind of leave, leave sprints out there and not go into that so deep. Um, but then, yeah, to change up the muscle groups, because as we'll talk about, you know, when you stand up, we engage uh, much more of the lower body muscles as well as the upper body. And that can, that can bring some relief there. And then obviously, you know, sitting in the saddle for hours at a time, I mean, there's a lot of pressure that goes on your bum as well as your feet and the muscles that you're working there. And so just changing up the position can really help um, just bring relief and kind of a, a change in a cue to your mind to um, kind of freshen up for the ride and whatnot. Yeah. So um, Renee, do, do you ever, do you ever prescribe getting out of the saddle to an athlete? Sometimes, you know, it might be, Hey, we're going to do a standing sprint, you know? Yeah. Um, but not a lot, you know, I, especially on, uh, I would say the general circumstances of when somebody gets out of the saddle, uh, the, about the only drills I can think of are, you know, like these, uh, long tempo drills, like tempo sprints, you, mm -hmm. you know, surge every, you know, for 10 seconds, every five minutes or something like that. Um, but not a lot. I don't tell my athletes to get out of the saddle a lot. I assume they're doing it when they need to. And I think that might be a, something that uh, could actually be communicated a little bit more for some people who uh, might not think to get out of the saddle. Because I think, I think it comes naturally to some people, and some people just never think to get out of the saddle. Yeah, that that's it entirely. And I think one of the, one of the reasons and one of the ideas why we uh, wanted to do this podcast is because I think some people just don't know, you know, when to get out of the saddle. Like we just talked about the, to make it real simple, those three things, right? They're also scared to get out of the saddle because I think they also, they read a lot or they hear a lot saying that it's going to cost you more or cause more fatigue if you get out of the saddle. So I, th I, I see a lot of riders, um, shy away from it. However, at the same time, you get somebody on a steep hill climb or you tell them to sprint, they do naturally get out of the saddle and go, right? Yeah. And I think a lot of people might not do it because maybe they don't feel completely comfortable. You know, there's a little bit more balance uh, on the bike or different kind of balance needed when you're standing on the pedals rather than have your weight supported by the saddle. Yeah, there's a lot of coordination that goes that goes into it, at least to feel smooth and be effective at doing it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So let's. So we talked about when to do it. Let's talk about why to do it. What, what 
give me the high level of what are the benefits of getting out of the saddle. Let's just say kind of in those three situations, either you're going hard, you're changing up muscle groups or relief on the saddle area. I think the biggest reason to get out of the saddle is increased power. Um, we can actually pull studies that will show the high peak power. You can generate higher peak power, like over five, 600 watt kind of peak power out of the saddle. You're the, it's because of the uh, increased use of the muscles and you're actually contracting your quads for a longer period of time while you're pedaling. So that's simply why in a sprint, you're going to see people out of the saddle at least to engage the sprint and it generate that high peak force. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you're, you're able to engage so much more muscle groups, uh, bigger muscle groups, bigger nerves, and also kind of utilize your body weight too. Once you get coordinated to produce more power overall, that's a huge advantage, huge benefit. Yeah. Yep. The other way of just not just the use of your muscles, um, you increase your hip angle a lot. When you're bent over on the bike, your hip angle is real closed. And once you open that up, you can generate a lot more force. You also get, uh, if you're doing it right, a lot more glute activation as well. Yeah. I was just going to ask where, you know, where does that little extra power come from? And when we're talking about that increased hip angle, I guess from a biomechanical standpoint, like what, what is it about that increased angle to give more power? How, how does, how does that work? If you could like simplify it. When, uh, um, when a muscle is on like either end of the contraction mm-hmm. is not when it's the strongest, like think about you're, you're doing a bicep curl mm-hmm. and you got your, the weight, your arms are all the way straight and it's really hard to pick up that dumbbell at the low end because your muscles on a, a lengthened and then in the middle it's the strongest and then at the top again it's so shortened you don't have much contraction to to uh to much. Like make the power thank you yeah. so on the glute side of things when your hip angle is closed, yeah. that's the, the your glutes are on the opposite end of your hip. So your glutes are stretched already. So they're already stretched oh. when you're bent over. Yeah. When you straighten up, the your glutes are they're not quite as stretched. So you can get a little bit more force from your glutes in that position. And then on the other side of things, on the 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 uh, with your hip angle closed, you also have your quads stretched at the top of the pedal stroke more. So it's, it's that increased hip angle does allow more forceful contraction, both from the glutes and the quads. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. It, you know, kind of being hunched over to like fully upright, you're just able to per, to push more using both those muscle groups front and the rear of you yeah. <laughs> to make it real simple. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really good, when I asked that question, I was like, oh man, without a visual aid, how is Renee going to answer this? But you crushed it, nailed it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so, so in the hips, so that increased hip angle, the quadriceps, the glutes, is there anything like below the knee that's occurring to benefit us when we stand up and, and get out of the saddle? There's actually not too much change in the glute, uh, not the glute, the gastrox, the calves, your calves. Um, people tend to toe down a little bit when they're out of the saddle. Naturally, you're, you're not going to be flat-footed out of the saddle. There's a little bit more activation in the front of your shin. That's the tibialis area, but that's not a major, major mover. It's all, it's all quads and glutes is, is the primary, uh, force production there. Gotcha. And, you know, maybe a misconception might be that you're actually generating some kind of force with your upper body and you're not, your, your, your upper body is there 
to manage the bike, move the bike side to side and your trunk, your, you know, abs and your low back muscles, they act to stabilize your body, but they're not really there to generate force. Gotcha. Gotcha. That's part of the, like the coordination aspect of that. But I think it's, yeah, that's a really important and, and good point to bring up is like that upper body's not helping you. And so it's only helping and guiding your bike. So I'll, I'll make this more of a question, Renee. If you have somebody going hard uphill and they're clenching the bars and they're just like getting after it, what would you tell that person to, would you tell that person anything, first of all, to, to change the way that they're climbing? If they're, you know, white knuckling the bars and going after it, uh, versus if you saw that, what, what would you do in that situation? I have to ask you a qualifier question. Is this all out last 200 meters of the race or is this 90% effort and I'm on a 10 minute climb and I'm all over the bike? Touche coach Renee. (laughs) I will then return back to you and say both. Okay. (laughs) So the, the, I had to ask because when it's peak, Sprint, last 200 meters, all in, you know, 30-second effort. It's everything you got. Yep. It it almost doesn't matter how messy you look, so to speak. Yep. When we're talking about a longer sustained effort, it's a five-minute effort, it's a 10-minute effort, it's a 20-minute effort, then efficiency comes into play because if we're lo- using a lot more energy than we need to, then that's that's uh, energy we're spending that we might need later on. So in that kind of classic sense where I think you started the question was more somebody should be aimed to be more relaxed uh, with their upper body uh, while they're climbing in the saddle. Yeah. Yeah. But, but you answered it perfectly, especially by asking that question beforehand, because a lot of this is situational, right? And so max is max full tilt, go for it. But yeah, the main point I was trying to make is I think for many people listening and for many riders, I see, you know, in the middle of a ride that are just trying to get through that hill climb there, there's a lot of benefit to relaxing the upper body as you, as you do the hill climb, even if it is a pretty hard effort, relax the hill climb and just save some of that energy that you could just be tensing, you know, the bars a little too much. We'll get into some of that upper body interaction a little bit more, but I just wanted to bring it up since you, since you did talk about the upper body. Yeah. No, Renee, since we're on kind of the bio mechanics of getting out of the saddle and climbing, we've talked about how, um, there's some benefits to, um, increasing the hip angle to get more glute and quadricep, um, force to produce that power. Uh, yeah. We didn't talk really about the hamstrings. Is there anything beneficial there by getting out of the saddle? No, there, you don't use your hamstrings a whole lot out of the saddle, actually. You, you, you'll you use your quads actually more out of the saddle than you would even normally. You, you get a greater uh, force of contraction. You contract your quads for a little longer. I think that's even why some people cramp when they get out of the saddle is because all of a sudden they're generating a lot more force out of those, uh, muscles. How about as we're just kind of like working down the legs a little bit, hip flexors. I know when athletes are not used to getting out of the saddle and they start doing that a lot. Um, there's a lot of hip flexor interaction going on. Is our hip, what are our hip flexors to do in, in part of this? And, um, Anything to note there when we're getting out of the saddle? Yeah, because that hip angle is uh, more open, you're able to use your hip flexors a little bit more, in particular with the upstroke, the pulling up of the pedals. If, if anybody's tried to sprint out of the saddle on flat pedals, they'll realize how much they're pulling up with when they're clipped in. Yep. Uh, yep. So there's quite a bit of, uh, there's more up force uh, with the, uh, out of the saddle accelerations. Yeah. So a little bit more use of those hip flexors. So if people aren't used to it, they might notice 
that a little bit, you know, soreness and activation from that. Yep. And if, you know, if you're kind of a sit and spin sort of, uh, sort of person and you start to work on getting out of the saddle, that's an area where I see athletes or hear athletes, um, comment, it's like, Ooh, that's real sore. Uh, but don't freak yeah. out cause you'll adapt. You'll get, you'll get better. Um, finally, I guess as we kind of wrap up, um, the bio, um, mechanics of some of this, anything to say about, um, the core and how the core is used in producing power out of the saddle versus in the saddle. Yeah, the core, uh, in order to produce a lot of power out of the saddle, you actually do need a strong core. It's not because your core is generating the power, but your your trunk muscles, the muscles around your hips, abs, uh, low back muscles, they stabilize your pe- pelvis so that then you can contract those leg muscles and generate the power so they, you know, act as stabilizers as the name says because i don't think that's something that everybody thinks about is that when your seat your your butt is on the saddle that's fixing your pelvis in a in a in a spot but if you're standing out of the saddle you have to do that with your muscles so um a strong core is necessary for good out of the saddle force production and i say a little bit of upper body strength. I don't think most people are limited on upper body strength in terms of out of the saddle, but um, you are using your biceps, triceps a little bit more. Gotcha. Is there any super secret coach Renee core workouts we should be doing? Like, should I just go bang out a bunch of sit-ups right now or, or what? You know, Adam, The best core exercises that are going to be really related to out of the saddle are those total body movements. Yeah, you want you want a strong core? Do some power cleans. Uh, Now, most athletes maybe aren't at that level in the gym of doing power cleans, but doing a lot of uh, dumbbell movements, body weight movements, where you're actually having to stabilize your core while you're lifting heavier weight, are great ways to train the core. And then you've got your standard, your your planks and your glute bridges and some of the fine movements there uh, to really focus on uh, those muscles in particular. But I don't myself nor have my athletes do a lot of ab crunches on the floor because that's not yeah. really a natural movement. It's, it's not the most effective. And, and yes, uh, one of the reasons why, I mean, I'm a huge fan of lifting heavy and doing some actual work. However, I'd say for most cyclists, even doing some, some planks, just as simple as planking for 30 seconds at a time, uh, front, right side, left side, that's going to like, if you haven't been doing anything in the way of core work, just start there. Like I'm guessing most people would get sore from it. Yeah. I, 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 Put one of my favorite exercises in there, hanging leg raises, yep. like hanging from a, a pull-up bar leg raises. Um, most uh, cyclists will have also weak hip flexors. And we talked about the hip flexors in the upstroke part of the pedal stroke. So that's one exercise that does train the muscles around the trunk, but really activates those hip flexors. Yes. And as we're throwing exercises out there, and I will link to this one too, Renee, um, I call it a plank crunch, plank side crunch, um, mm. is what I typically call it. And, um, I'll link to that, but that is also a very, that's a good, like bang for the bunk, um, core exercise for athletes. Plank, to use. plank runs too. Well, mm-hmm. or a dynamic plank movement, like a push up. <laughs> Whoa. Well, what is a push-up but a dynamic plank? Oh, for sure. Right? Uh, uh, T push-ups uh, is what I think the normal um, world calls them, but uh, okay. I, I call them um, um, alternating side push-ups or plank push-ups uh, where basically oh, yeah. you do yeah, push-up and then put your arm up in the air. I'll, I'll link to some of these, but these are all like great ideas. Did not mean to get into the rabbit hole of all <laughs> the exercises you could do to train your core, uh, but to the point and kind of to summarize the biomechanics of climbing. Um, sure. You need a strong core. Absolutely. You also need to get coordinated by doing it. 
And the more you do it, the better you'll get at it. So if we talk about doing it, Renee, of getting out of the saddle and doing kind of this process. Yeah. I don't even know how this is going to go necessarily on a podcast, but we're just going to go for it. Could you explain to our listeners, just like you would an athlete who came to you and say, how do I climb out of the saddle, Coach Renee? So the first part of it is the, you know, transition from the seated to the standing, you know, moving your, your butt off, up, off the saddle. You need a little bit of resistance for that uh, to be effective. If you've ever done it in a super tiny gear when you're spinning it at 100 RPMs with no resistance and then you try to stand up, it doesn't work. So the step one would be shift to one to two harder gears in the back unless you're at the point on a climb where maybe it's steep enough that you don't have any more gears or you're going to have to shift to an easier gear to keep going. Yep. So the step one is you need a little resistance before you stand up because you need to have some re resistance to basically stand on the pedal. So a moderate effort and a moderate gearing to even start this process. Yeah, but I don't also say even heavy gear. Sure. Yeah. You know, and in that transition to standing as you're, you know, getting up your, you know, one foot is at three o'clock and you're pulling on the bars as you're lifting your weight out of the saddle. And an important part here is that you should keep pressure on the pedals the whole time. I, I think that's a mistake as people are just standing up. They stop pedaling and then try to stand. And what that creates is what we call the Carmichael kickback. Why do I don't we call know it you... that, Coach Renee? <laughs> well, I don't know if you've ever been on a climb, Adam, where you're riding behind somebody and all of a sudden their back wheel comes flying at you when they stand up. And that is what we affectionately refer to as uh, the Carmichael kickback. Because there is one coach in the company who will remain nameless that does that used to do that. <laughs> Chris, I love you. Uh, but yeah, when he, when, when he would get tired, you got to watch out. Cause when he stands up, there's a little bit of a kickback. And, and so what Renee's referring to there, I mean, we, we, we joke, but it's, it's a thing and you got to watch out for that. Especially if you're in a group, people are getting tired and they're, you know, changing up their saddle position. It's so like, if you're following super close behind that wheel can come back and, and kind of spook you. Right. So I think anytime that you do shift, you know, her point here is when you shift from uh, getting out of the saddle to um, standing out, just be mindful of the people around you, if if there are people around you. So Yeah. yeah. And the, the, the number one point, keep pedaling and keep pressure on the pedals. Yep. And there's actually, you'll notice, or you should notice, like each pedal stroke, two pedal strokes harder as you're, as you're standing out of the saddle because yep. that pushes your bike forward a little bit. Yeah. And to go forward, forward is better than backward. Yes. Yep. Okay. So I've transitioned up from, from sitting to standing and I'm kind of moving forward a little bit. What's next? Yeah. So you are forward. Your body's more forward of the saddle. You are, uh, leaning forward and you don't want to go too forward. If you go right. way forward, then all of a sudden there's no weight on your back wheel. You might even notice the rear wheel picking up or there's just a lot of pressure on your hands. Um, on the other side, some people just stand straight up and they're like, butt still over the saddle. And then they're, the weight's too far back. And it's really squirrely because you have no weight on the front wheel. <laughs> and the ideal is, you know, just in front, you're just in front of the bottom bracket a little bit. Um, you have some weight on your, your arms and a cue that I used to use is that when you're out of the saddle and that bike is rocking back to forth, you could actually feel the saddle hit the back of your thighs a little bit. Um, now, as I was thinking about that, uh, I ride a power saddle now. 
and it's a short saddle, so it no longer hits the back of my thighs. Yep. But the the point there is that your sh- your saddle shouldn't you shouldn't be directly over the saddle, and you shouldn't be so far in front of your saddle that uh your your weight's all on the bars. Exactly. Yeah, there's a little bit of a hover technique that goes on, you know, in that. And as we kind of move through this this um, explanation via podcast, it's it's challenging. Uh, <laughs> so just kind of bear with us here. And the main implication is pick a few nuggets to try here to apply to your climbing and go out there and just do and refine and try. Um, because as you are on the saddle, the, the one thing I'll say there too, Renee, is the steeper the hill climb is, the more forward you need to become. And then the less steep it becomes, then you kind of move back toward that saddle. Yeah. But there's always that fore aft um, negotiation that's kind of going on with the, the gradient um, change. So yeah. as we're cresting the hill climb and we're coming back to the seat, what, what does that look like? At the same rule of keep pedaling applies sitting down as as standing up that you want to keep pedaling and keep pressure on the pedals as you are sitting down and uh one thing that will help that transition be smooth if you're actually kind of throw the bike a little forward with your arms you kind of push the bike forward as you keep spinning your legs to smoothly transition down to the saddle. Um, probably the most, you know, maybe common mistake I might see is people just stop pedaling and then just plop on the saddle. Yeah. And that not only is abrupt and it's a, a, a little jarring, it's also a momentum killer. Huge momentum killer. I was just about to say that. Yeah. Good point. <laughs> that that's, Maybe one of the things on the practicing and getting smoother on your transitions, both in and out of the saddle, is I think if somebody is not terribly smooth with it, even that increased power you're getting out of the saddle, you're actually going slower because of your transitions. You're losing a fraction of a second uh, or, or a little bit less power production as you're probably more than that transition sitting down. Where yeah, they actually I, go backwards a little bit. Yeah, I would say that's probably probably the number one thing for most people to take away is when you're transitioning back to seated, don't stop and plop. Keep keep pedaling, keep the momentum going, especially when you're cresting over the top. I see a ton of people, you know, they've they've reached the hill climb, you know, and say whether they're solo riding or it's a, you know, kind of who cares, I guess, if it's solo riding. Cool. If you need to stop and get a snack, do it. But if you're in a group setting or if you just want to keep it going, just a couple more pedal strokes as you go. Keep your momentum going and it's going to be way more fun. It's going to be way more fun. So that's a, that's a pretty good explanation um, via podcast with no visual explanations, Renee, of how to climb out of the saddle. Um, I'm digging it. So I'd like to add one more yeah. thing, Adam. Yeah, yeah, please do. About the out of the saddle because we haven't talked about what do we do with our arms. And upper body. Because, uh, yes, out of the saddle, you are going to use your arms a lot more. And I think that's uh, – uh, for some people, if they're not real comfortable out of the saddle, they actually try to hold their bike still. And and arms are maybe even locked and they're are straight and they're trying to – and that's really wobbly to do that. And out of the saddle, you should be pushing and pulling on the bars with your arms. So your arms are, your arms are actually, you know, straightening and pushing straight and straightening and, 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 uh, and, and pulling back to rock the bike side to side so that your body stays still. Your torso stays in the same spot and the bike moves around underneath you. Yep. Unless yeah. you're unless you're Annemiek Van Vluten and you move your body all over the bike, <laughs> and you're, and you're, I don't know if you've ever seen her sprint, but she sure. looks messy. 
Yeah. In fact, I had her like kind of visually in my head when you brought up like it should be rocking. I'm like, but some people don't. Um, so it's it's not always true and she can still put down some some huge power. However, to make it smoothly for most people and, you know, there is that rocking back and forth that's going on for our YouTube watchers who, who are watching. And if this is the person here and this is the bike underneath, you know, the body kind of stays relatively the same, but the bike is rocking back and forth as they go. Yeah. And that's helping in their power production, everything that we just talked about in terms of the benefit. Well, it also is going to allow you room to get that leg over the top of the pedal stroke as you're pushing the bike away from you and pulling it back. You know, for for those of you not, you know, not real uh, attuned to getting out of the style, try it with your arms straight and, and, and don't move your bike and, and you find that you're 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 pogoing up and down and up and down and it's mm-hmm. real awkward. But then if you let the bike go back and forth and back and forth, you actually have your hips can stay relatively level and get those legs around the top of the pedal stroke a lot easier if you're moving the bike side to side. That's it. That's it. Yeah, really good explanation. Um what what else should we focus on? while we're climbing, Let, let's say that our, say our listeners go out and they practice it and they did everything that coach Renee, you know, told them to do. And now they're like, man, I feel a lot more efficient, a lot more coordinated. Uh, what else do, do you ever talk about, or do you ever talk with your athletes about cadence, breathing rate of perceived effort? What, what else are you telling your athletes to do to focus on, on hill climbs? Well, when you're getting out of the saddle, you probably will notice a little bit of an increase in maybe ventilation, breathing a little harder, heart rate gets a little higher, because um, you're using more muscles. You're using your postural muscles a little more. You're certainly using your upper body a little bit more, and it can drive up some of those metrics. Um, and I think that's why people you know, hesitate or, or shy away from climbing out of the saddles because they think it increases their effort. Now, I, I think you can have actually an increased heart rate without increased effort because uh, just because you're using your upper body muscles a little bit more doesn't mean that your uh, legs are working any harder. You don't have to be going harder if you're out of the saddle. I think that's yep maybe one of the points to make it's a misconception. Here is that yep. is that that might be something that I actually see a lot of people do when they're not used to getting out of the saddle. Every time they get out, they're sprinting. Yes. It's a sprint every time they get out. Where there is a a, a especially with the saddle uh, relief on the saddle area or just changing the muscle groups where you can get out of the saddle and just kind of remain at like maybe a that slow cadence, 60, 70 RPMs, you're just really smooth and rhythmic, and you're just using it for a change of that position, but not using it to increase your effort. So there is a difference of of if you're actually increasing the effort or actually taking a little bit of a break. I know for myself, when I stand out of the saddle and just use it as relief, there's actually a, a lower perception of effort because I'm now actually using my body weight a little bit to push those pedals over and generate that same, whatever, you know, 300 Watts I'm doing. Yeah, exactly. 400 typically for you. 400, 450. Yep. Um, no, and that's a wonderful point. And it was, it was a point I was going to bring up is, is practicing the art of not sprinting out of the saddle. Right. Cause that's where I think for beginners, it's a, it's a misconception that if I'm out of the saddle, I must go hard. And so that's what you should do when you're kind of like solo practice is like, you can even look down and look at your power meter and just make sure that you're doing 150 or 200, whatever you're doing while you're climbing seated, just keep the same power out of the saddle. You'll have to shift down a little bit, use a lower cadence, stand up and produce the same power, produce the same effort. And that's when I'm working with athletes, say for the first time on some of this, that's a lot of people like to look at power. And that's a good metric to to use, but I also encourage them to be like, Hey, you know, let's do this hill climb at a six or a seven out of 10 and just keep that the same when you're out of the saddle or in the saddle, just keep it the same. Keep on practicing. You mentioned cadence, uh, Renee, and you said like 60 to 70. 
Is that like a typical cadence that you do or you prescribe for hill climbs or um, anything that you kind of change or prescribe on, on cadence or would advise to our listeners? I think there's a lot of individuality with cadence. You know, for some individuals, uh, you know, 70 RPMs is low. And for others, that's maybe not on the high side, but certainly on the medium side there. You know, I think it... If you're dropping too much below 60, uh, you're either on a 25% gradient or, uh, yep. uh, you know, if you're not already in your easiest gear, you might need an easier gear, uh, whether you're seated or standing, you know? Yep. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. And I'd say for people who love to stress and talk about cadence, like here's where it's at. If you're 80 to 100 for most of your riding, that's pretty good. When you're hill climbing, drop it below there. 60, 70, maybe 80. If you're out of the saddle, maybe a little bit lower. And kind of playing around that 60 to 70, 70 to 75, you know, find out what works pretty good for you. I'd say if you're, like Renee said, if you start to go lower, you become inefficient. We'll talk about the cost of some of that as we go here. However, also know that if you're climbing steep grades and you're still trying to hit like 95 or a hundred and you're just spinning and dancing, that's typically going to be at a cost as well. Inefficiently just spinning too high. And that's where the heart rate for in, in this a few caveats there and in Renee, you can chime in if, if you want to, but I do find for most people who are doing steep hill climbs, if they're trying to reach for too high of cadence, heart rate's high, perceived efforts high, and they're not moving as fast as they can. If they would just lower their cadence and push a little bit more of a harder gear up that hill climb. Yeah, I think we got into, we coaches uh, got yes. into a habit of pushing. If you can't spin, you can't win kind of philosophy <laughs> yeah. for so long that I see a lot of people uh, uh, tickling on the pedals mm -hmm. on the way up a hill where if they actually put a little more oomph into every pedal stroke, that's whether uh, that's seated and climb and climbing out of the saddle, um, that they actually can go faster um, and keep more tension on the muscles. So to, to produce more power is, yep. is the, is the key, but, you know, standing out of the saddle at, you know, 90, a hundred RPMs is something that's going to be a Sprint, not something that you can sustain. Um, it's a peak force kind of effort at that high cadence out, out of the saddle. 200 meters to go type stuff. Yeah. Yeah, totally. There's also uh, like the specificity of an event that kind of goes on with cadence. And I'll cue this up by saying um, for my mountain bikers in particular, is if we're racing, say, in Colorado versus Central America versus Europe. Um, there's, there's different gradients that goes, uh, you know, in terrain that goes on in those different locations. So if you're, well, even East coast, if you're used to climbing at, um, you know, on eight or 10% grades, maybe 12% at max, and you can hit 65 RPMs, 70 RPMs, cool. But then you go down to Colombia or <laughs> Central America or, um, uh, some mountain bike, uh, world cup courses over in Europe, you'll hit these steep punchers that will require you to go down into the fifties for short time periods at max effort and go for it. So I think it just, and it's not going against what we just talked about, but you're, you want to look at the demands of the sport, look how steep you're going to be going. And if that requires really low cadence, do it in your training so that it, it is not a non-specific thing once you get to the race. Right. Yeah. That's a great point. Yep. And for somebody like Renee, who, I don't know, he'll climb champ of the world. Uh, she can climb uh 14ers, uh, in, in Colorado where she'll likely be climbing for, uh, how long does it take you to climb Pike's peak? Well, Pike's peak's the short one, but short Mount one. Evans is two and a half hours, two and a half hours of climbing. Yes, exactly. So, and <laughs> I don't know. Do you, randomly, do you know your average cadence going up uh, Mount Evans? I would have to look, but I'd say 70. Yeah. 
which is probably going to be different than racing. I don't know. Um, a stage in Redlands or something. I don't know. Well, yeah, the, the climbs in Colorado are, are for the most part, much more gentle gradients. A lot of 6% yep. grades, maybe 7 or 8% grades. You don't see a lot of double digits. Yep. You see some, of course, but not, right. not like East Coast or, like you said, down Columbia. Yeah. So just, just a point on that specificity, kind of know what you're getting into so that you can, um, train for it. And the last bit of it, um, on a focus on, on hill climbing is I encourage my athletes to focus on their breathing quite a bit too, just to be aware of it and lean into it and find like that rhythm as they're going. Because what I find on long hill climbs, they, that is usually a better thing to focus on rather than staring at their power meter or making sure that they're hitting 70 RPMs, whatever you told them to do, right? Just focus on your breath, look around, focus on your breath. And that cues them to the awareness of their body as well. Yeah. Anything to add to that, Renee, before we get into the, the whole costs of climbing out of cell? Let's get into it. Let's do it. All right. So with everything in life, there's always a flip side of the coin. Are there any drawbacks to climbing out of the saddle, Renee? Yes. I think that there is an increased uh, uh, energy demands because you are involved in your upper body a, a little bit more, you know, at uh, lower intensity. Um, there's a little bit of increased, like, metabolic demand, you know, increased oxygen consumption, VO2 rate that's going to you're going to see it in increased heart rate uh maybe increased breathing rate um so you're burning more energy you're using more energy to move theoretically just as fast um however if it's the last 200 meters of the race and you get to stop after 30 seconds or it's the key moment of the race where if you don't keep up your race is over then it's worth that extra cost. So you have to kind of differentiate between am I going for the long effort and just trying to get to the top the best I can, or do I need to put everything into this peak effort and it's worth the energy uh, expenditure to get that burst of power? Yep. Yep. Agreed. You know, when it's, when it's max, it's max. It kind of doesn't matter in that regard. Um, when you're out of the saddle, you engage more muscle groups, elicited a little bit higher heart rate and in higher power. So that's going to cost more. What else happens as well? Are we, are we push like, are we pushing more air? Like what else is going on to, um, to change our cost when we get, well, we're, we're definitely less aerodynamic. Yeah. Uh, when we're standing up versus, you know, uh, in that normal racer position. Now it doesn't always matter if, you're going six miles per hour. Aerodynamics isn't a huge factor at that point. Um, but I know we're going to talk sprinting, but I'm going to bring it up for a moment. Uh, the whole Caleb Ewan, super low, super aero guy, he puts his nose right down on his stem. Uh, and that's why he's so fast. He's not doing a lot more power than those guys, but he's super aerodynamic because he gets so low. Um, so that's a very, you know, probably real example of aerodynamic standing where, uh, in a last 200 meters of a race, that aerodynamics does, does count when they're going, what, 40 miles an hour for you, 50, 50. Yeah. Um, so, but when we're climbing, does, does it matter? Cause we're going so slow. It, it doesn't matter a lot, you know. I think the, the, the tried and true 15 miles per hour is where aerodynamics starts to play a bigger role when your speeds are above 15 miles right. per hour. Yep. Or maybe there's a huge headwind. I was just going to say, there's there's also winds, right? So I've been top of Pike's Peak <laughs> with this, you know, it switchbacks at the very top, right? So tremendous winds up at the top of a 14,000 foot mountain, a great tailwind going 20, 30 miles an hour, one way, huge headwind going four miles an hour the next. Right. And that's when you just want to like an extreme example, tuck down yeah. and, and punch a small, uh, hole as possible. But my point is for most hill climbs, unless you're climbing above. Yeah. I'd say I agree with you too. 15 miles an hour. 
kind of doesn't matter. And that's where I think the advantage of a little extra power, um, as well as changing up muscle groups, I would encourage people to get out of the saddle. Yeah. Climbing. Also, when we talk about that increased cost and I will say I read through, uh, Renee did an awesome job of compiling a bunch of research, uh, ahead of this. I read like three of them out of six. So I'm going to link to that in show notes and whatnot, but there's one kind of when we're talking about the cost in particular, max is max and kind of doesn't matter. Like we talked about, but there's one citation where you talked about, uh, the metabolic cost or the amount of oxygen that we're taking in at moderate intensity. And that moderate intensity was around 75%, right? Yeah. And so can you talk a little bit about that increased energy cost associated with that say 75% or a sub maximum sort of effort where it's like, okay, if I'm climbing at a, you know, uh, sub threshold, moderate effort, it will cost me more. Was, was there anything to say it will cost me this much more, or is there a cost benefit there that you would, um, associate after reading that research? Or can you walk us through a bit there and you can even use your coaching experience and say, here's how it is. I think that increased energy cost, it comes into play when you're, you're talking about, uh, uh, your best performance over, uh, a three, four hour race, certainly a six, seven, eight hour race and, and things like that, where, if it took you, you know, it's a 20 minute climb. And if it took you 200 kilojoules of work to, to get to the top, uh, uh, then versus, or, or 250 versus 200, then by the end of a four hour race, if you add up those extra energy expenditures every single climb, then you're into, I've run out of gas. When we're talking about a one shot, 20 minute hill climb you only care about getting to the top that's it's not that pertinent or if you're talking about an endurance ride where oh i expended more energy on this one climb and this in this context of an endurance ride it's not very significant but when it's leadville and you're needing every ounce of energy to make it through those last 15 or 20 miles that's when it really counts so I don't have a I don't have a number for it. Uh, to, I think there's a little bit of a common sense of of is this an event where every every I need every calorie I can conserve. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way of looking at it. And I I would say too, it goes a little bit more hand in hand with uh, it, you know the aerodynamics aspect of it too, where <clears> it's like choosing when you're getting out of the saddle um, is going to cost less, right? So the steep hill climbs, get through them, get out of the saddle, get through them. But like when you're solo and it's a strong headwind and you're in the middle of Leadville, you know, going out to Columbine, if you do stand up just to kind of like change up the muscle groups, like do it for three seconds and then get back down. Right. And that's where I think, you know, we're not talking about standing out of the saddle, you know, for huge, long periods of time here, we're talking about certain, uh, certain times periods throughout the ride, key elements, um, for you to do, to really increase performance in the long run. So Renee, I guess before we like really start to close this out, I do want to talk about the difference between like bigger people and smaller people. Do you see any correlation between big people and small people and whether they climb out of the saddle more or less? I can speak as a little person. For those speak of away. you who, who cannot, uh, who don't uh, know me or can't see me because this is a podcast, I'm only five foot tall. Um, I'm, I can barely fit on an adult size bike. Um, and I stand out of the saddle a lot. And, you know, just kind of anecdotally, I'm like, oh, little people climb out of the saddle a lot. Why is that? Um, and there's, it, we're quick and nimble. 
uh, it doesn't cost me as much energy just on an absolute level to lift my body weight out of the saddle. And the other thing that, uh, so it's not costing me as much energy to, to move my smaller mass out of the saddle. Um, I'm lighter. I'm, uh, I mean, that's why little people are gymnasts. We can uh, jump around a lot more easy <laughs> than the big, you know, seven foot called tall guy. The other thing is that on an absolute level, I'm, uh, as a smaller person, I'm also putting out much less watts. I have less muscle mass. And I can't generate as much torque, torque being force on the pedal stroke, as a larger person can. On And there's some physics behind just absolute power. That if even, you know, you take power to weight into it, of course. But there is a, an absolute difference in me doing four watts per kilo at, you know, under 50 kilos versus somebody who weighs 80 kilos doing four watts per kilo, they're doing, you know, 70, 80 more watts than I am. So that's just to say the, the amount of force on the pedal stroke, I, I need my body weight to get that acceleration. It doesn't cost me as much overall energy to get up out of the saddle, but I also need to get out of the saddle more because if I'm going to put a lot of force I can't generate as high as absolute power, uh, so I have to do everything I can to to get that torque on the pedal stroke. So I need my body weight to do that. Yep. Yeah, that's it's very true. You know, it, it, when it comes down to you know engaging that mass and moving that mass, that's huge. And also, you know, back to aerodynamics. You know, bigger people will have an increased drag, especially when they do um, stand up and get out of the saddle, even if it's you know slow um, speeds or not. And I'd say, you know, I'm not a big person grand scheme of things, but I'm a bigger cyclist. I'm not, I'm not a small cyclist by any means. Um, but I'd say I climb out of the saddle quite a bit and, um, and it feels good to me. It works, um, get up hills pretty decently, but I guess, you know, where I'm going at is just because I get out of the saddle and Renee gets out of the saddle. doesn't mean that our, all of our listeners should get out of the saddle more predominantly. Okay. But what we are encouraging everyone to do is if, if you've had some of these like biased beliefs that getting out of the saddle costs more, or, um, it's going to hurt me more and it's going to cause more fatigue. It's, it's not necessarily true. There's times and places where if you deploy it incorrectly, it, yeah, that could be the case because there are costs associated with it. However, there are certain time periods where it's going to be really beneficial for you to do. And I'll kind of cue it over to you, Renee, is, is, um, is this thing trainable? Like if there is a cost associated with getting out of the saddle and, and then I get really tired and my hip flexors hurt and all this kind of stuff and I get sore, if I do it more, will I get better at it? Absolutely. Like anything, the more you do it, the better you get at it. And I would encourage people, even if you're not going to plan to be an out of the saddle Naira Quintana climber, that you should practice getting out of the saddle some because the, 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 one of the common things I hear is that, oh, at the end of my race, I stood up to sprint and I cramped because they're using these muscles they've never used or, or rarely used. And so that being able to have that, uh, that trick up your sleeve when you need it, you need to practice it a little bit. Even if it's not going to be a thing that you do a lot or predominates your your climbing style, I would encourage people to get out of saddle a little bit. Um. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. And one of the way, one of the things I've been doing, actually coming off of uh, kind of this shoulder season from um, winter and into spring, is I still have quite a few folk on the trainer still, and. Um, we've been doing some pretty long indoor workouts to prepare for the outdoor events. And I have been prescribing and writing different cadence, um, different cadence prescriptions and also encouraging people to get out of the saddle for 30 seconds, every 10 minutes or something like this to get them dynamic 
in and out of the saddle to get them moving, to get them engaging different muscle groups, um, to do that. And I don't know if that is something that you do, Renee. Um, but as, as one way that I've found to be pretty effective, uh, for people who are indoors quite a bit and, and don't have the luxury of, uh, getting out on hill climbs right now. Do you do yeah, anything I think that's different? Yeah, a great idea. No? Uh, no, I think similar things, little accelerations out of the saddle, accelerations uh, interspersed between maybe within the middle of an interval or maybe some just some sprints, period. Um, that's something that I've, you know, over the last you know, couple of years here, I started incorporating more into indoor workout. Is just throw a three, few sprints in there because yep. otherwise there's no reason to sprint. Where outside, there often is a reason to sprint, like, oh, I'm pushing off from a stoplight, or, oh, I have to, you know, zip through this, uh, zip in front of this car, or something like that, or, oh, there's a squirrel. Uh, there's all sorts of reasons that you might need to have, uh, uh, instigate a, a moment out of the saddle. Uh, even just pushing off from a stoplight, you're out of the saddle for a few pedal strokes, so you don't have any of that on the trainer. So inter, uh, including a few sprints in your warm-up is a great idea to just, you know, uh, include some of that dynamic cycling into a more static stationary workout. Does a sprint inside feel the same as outside? No, it doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> how, how, is, how is it different, and what is there to say about getting out of the saddle inside versus versus outside. And you can talk about hill climb or you can talk about sprint or whatever you want. One of the biggest differences is the bike doesn't move. The mm -hmm. bike is fixed. So when we were talking about rocking the bike, you're not doing that. Uh, I guess you, unless you're on one of those rock and roll things, uh, I can't remember what trainer that is, but it's, uh, so you are actually moving your body along or around the bike a lot more. So if you, uh, you do need to practice it on the road uh, to translate it and get that mm -hmm. you know, motion down. The other thing I, I see is that most people cannot generate as high peak force on the trainer as they can out on the road. Yep. Uh, trainers are a lot better than when, uh, back in my day, uh, like, you know, the, the, I think the uh, the kickers can generate like 2,000 watts uh, or something, but that moment of inertia to to overcome that first force of the pedal stroke, it's the weight of the flywheel that your body weight against gravity has uh, the gravitational forces of you and the bike against the ground is much, still much greater than what you're going to see on the the trainer. So you just don't have that same level of resistance. You're not, you're moving a flywheel. You're not moving your body against gravity. Yeah, that's that. it. Yeah, that's it. And, and I don't remember who actually said this, but I say this a lot. And I say that one of the main differences is you're producing power outside versus resisting force inside. Yeah. You combine that with the fact that the bike is normally, unless you have some fancy setups where, um, you know, a, a platform underneath you can sway, but the bike is generally locked in. And so, you know, all that to say, it is still beneficial to get out of the saddle when you're riding inside because it's going to one, establish good habits of getting out of the saddle every once in a while, relieving pressure on the bum and the legs, changing up muscle groups, as well as on hill climbs to engage muscles a little bit more and produce a little bit more power. So I'd say, you know, if, if some listeners here are predominantly training inside and they're training their FTP and they have like, say, I don't know, like a three by 10 threshold workout. Um, typically what I'll say is, okay, three by 10 threshold every, uh, third minute stand up for 20 seconds, same power, same effort. And that will help to cue you practicing a couple things. One, getting out of the saddle, right? Two, producing the same power out of the saddle as you are in the saddle. And three, starting to learn how to get a little um, coordination because it, a kicker or um, a tax trainer or something like that will still move a little bit and you'll still have kind of that general body sway. 
but that's a really good way just to incorporate it. And also I think for most people, whether it's, I don't know what it is about the psychology of it, but giving somebody a shorter thing or a, something to do in a shorter time frame during a longer thing actually really helps somebody uh, get through a 10 minute interval. Right. Yeah. So uh, that's, that's one example. And it, any other examples that you would throw out there, Renee? No, I think we're doing a lot of the same, uh, similar stuff there. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that is good. Um, yeah. And I think, I don't know, any, any last little bit comments of, um, if, if somebody is like super anti getting out of the saddle, Renee, is there, is there any final, final comments that you would tell them to just open their mind and, and climb a little bit more out of the saddle? The biggest selling point is you can produce more power. Bingo. Yep. But the caveat to that is it costs a little more energy. So, you know, use it when you need it, but use it judiciously. That's right. Yeah. It's a super secret power, you know? <laughs> yeah. Use it every once in a while, but it takes, takes a while to, to regenerate, right? Yeah. 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 So I guess, you know, in summary, there's kind of three reasons to get out of the saddle. It's, it's going hard, changing up the muscle groups or to relieve pressure in the saddle area. The benefits are you produce more power. The, the costs or the negatives are, it might cost you a little bit, uh, energy to do it, but still when it comes down to 200 meters or the winning move, you'll be out of the saddle and, and winning just like Renee. Don't win too many sprints these days. <laughs> But, but, uh, all joking aside, uh, we've got a pretty decorated coach and decorated, uh, athlete that we talked to today in Renee Eastman. Um, again, I, I thank you for carving out the time and, uh, kind of pushing your, your, your clients at bay so that I could get you for 90 minutes or so while we talk. Um, just out of curiosity, are you taking on any clients right now, Renee? As a matter of fact, Adam, I have a room for a couple athletes this summer. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Is it, um, I mean, I know you mentioned that you take anything from road cyclists to triathletes, but, uh, are, are all welcome or are you really focused on like another national champion masters, uh, trophy to add to the case? I am happy to work with any athlete with goals. It doesn't matter if your goal is, you know, I want to do a PR on my Strava Hill next to my house, or I want to win a national championship. And I think that's probably a misconception that a lot of people have about coaching is that you have to be a racer. You have to be a competitor to need a coach. No, you just yeah. have to get, want to get better. Yeah. Just get after it. We'll help you. Yeah. Yep. That's it. Well, great. If, if, um, if people are just curious to, uh, uh, follow you on social media is where are you most active? On uh, Instagram, Renee Eastman is my handle Very a lot cool. of cat pictures these days so if you <laughs> like cats and you like bikes you'll probably enjoy my instagram it's a good fit that's all right well cool renee thank you again for taking time to be with us on the train right podcast great thanks for having me adam thanks for joining us this week on the train right podcast we hope you enjoyed the show make sure to visit our website at trainright.com forward slash podcast where you can find social links, bonus content, and more about CTS. Go ahead and subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss a show, and leave us a rating on iTunes. Until next time, train hard, train smart, train right. <laughs>